Alito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutta Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chutta Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. I should never have surrendered. I should have fought until I was the last man alive. These are the words spoken on the deathbed of probably the most well-known Native American warrior in history. But what about that so-called history? Sometimes the tales of notorious Indians were just that, tales, or their stories were written by authors who sensationalized the facts. Thankfully, historians are coming out with more information these days, and although we may never know the whole story, we do know a little more than we did yesterday. Growing up, many natives I knew didn't like the idea of Geronimo. They considered him a sellout, making money from the same people who took their people captive, while others saw him as a great warrior and someone who knew how to make the most of his situation. After hearing my guests' research and also doing some searching on my own, Geronimo really comes to life for me in a whole new way. Listeners, I hope you'll appreciate and take notes of the history and story of this warrior and how he was right smack dab in a pivotal and difficult moment in American Indian history. I'd like to introduce you to Dr. W. Michael Farmer coming to us straight from Virginia. How's everything out your way, Michael? Uh, hello, everybody. Everything's, everything's fine here. It's just hotter than blue blazes and very humid. <laughs> Yes, it's definitely summer, so we thought maybe this is a good time to be inside recording, right? Absolutely. <laughs> now, before we get to know Geronimo a little more, I'd like to highlight some of your own story. So here goes. W. Michael Farmer is a retired PhD physicist. His scientific research included measurement of atmospheric aerosols with laser-based instruments, and he has published a two-volume reference book on atmospheric effects on remote sensing. 
Michael also combines 10 plus years of research into 19th century Apache history and culture with Southwest living experience to fill his stories with a genuine sense of time and place. He has also written short stories for anthologies and award-winning essays. His first novel, Hombrecito's War, won a Western Writers of America Spur Finalist Award for Best First Novel in 2006 and was a New Mexico Book Award finalist for historical fiction in 2007. In addition, his book, Killer of Witches, The Life and Times of Yellow Boy, Mascalero Apache, book one, won a Will Rogers Medallion Award and was a New Mexico, Arizona Book Awards finalist in 2016. There are many more awards to mention, but let's kick off here into learning more about Geronimo the Warrior. What inspired you to write about Geronimo? Uh, he was a uh, uh, the the bad guy when I was a kid growing up in all the movies. Uh, mm-hmm. You know when uh, when the actors who were invariably cowboys and or uh, cavalry uh, spoke his name, it was it was always uh, loaded with ominous foreboding. And uh, you know when I when I uh, grew up and kind of forgot about Indians for a while, trying to uh, to uh, uh, make a living, <laughs> uh, I kind of forgot about him. But uh, well, you were kind of uh, being a physicist and stuff. You yeah, know? I right. was pretty impressed by your right. background, by the way. Yeah, um, yeah. So go ahead. But but uh, when I started writing. Uh, he wound up being a, a minor character in my second novel. And I did a little bit of research on him for the novel. And I realized that after he surrendered, most folks knew little or nothing about what happened to him and the Chiricahuas. Mm. Uh, and I learned it was a remarkable story and its events were great fuel for a novel. And so uh, I started uh, writing about him. Well, I'm glad you did because again, I had no idea the details of this. And like you said, we all grew up watching some of those movies back in the day. Um, the Westerns, I grew up watching those with my dad a lot. Um, some were black and white, some were color. And there's really, as we all know now, such a misconception that was brought about from Hollywood in those movies. And hopefully we're starting to write some of those misconceptions now, but you know, there could possibly be some folks out there who haven't heard of Geronimo. So I'll give a quick overview here. From history.com in 2019, I quote, Geronimo, 1829 to 1909, was an Apache leader and medicine man best known for his fearlessness in resisting anyone, Mexican or American, who attempted to remove his people from their tribal lands. He repeatedly evaded capture and life on his reservation, and during his final escape, a full quarter of the U.S. Standing Army pursued him and his followers. Well, let's start with Geronimo's early life. Where was he born, and in what year? Uh, he was he was born in the uh, Upper Gila River country, which includes a part of uh, western New Mexico. And there's some debate exactly whether he was he was on the west side of the New Mexico Arizona border or on the east side. Mm-hmm. It really probably doesn't make a lot of uh, difference. Uh, that the books, like uh, his autobiography, say that he was born in 1829. But uh, 
uh, Angie Debo, who wrote what was considered the uh, definitive biography, says that it was more likely that uh, that he uh, he was born in 1823. Uh, the the their place of birth was was important to Apaches, and as children, they uh, were often taken. Uh, the, to their birthplace to roll on the ground in the four directions to prove the place of their birth. And when you, when you see uh, months of birth, much less days, it's pure supposition. And the, and yeah. the year is a best guess. Barrett, his autobiography tried to, uh, his autobiographer tried to organize the events in Geronimo's life according to the angle calendar. Uh, normally a season in Geronimo's case, a season of many leaves, late spring, early summer, and a major event in the year was about as close as they kept a birth date. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Angie Debo, as I said, uh, believed that uh, his the year that he was born is most likely uh, 1823 because he grew up with and was about the same age as uh, Jason Betson is mother who remembered Halley's comet and the night the stars fell. So, uh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, I, I have relatives too, that my own great grandmother, all our lives, we always known her, knew her to have two birthday months in the same year, every year, because she didn't know when her birthday was. So <laughs> even as, as uh, soon as that. So tell us about the Chiricahua Apache and about the four sub bands of the Chiricahua. Okay. The, uh, as you say, there were four bands. Geronimo began, began life uh, as a bet on Koe. Uh, they were located in eastern central Arizona and uh, western central New Mexico, and they eventually merged with other ba other bands. Uh, then there were the Choconan Chiricahuas, uh, who were the band of uh, Cochise and his son, and they were located in uh, southeastern Arizona. Uh, the Cahini, also known as the Membranos or Warm Springs Apaches were the band of Mangus Coloradus. And he was, uh, the books say that he was probably the, the greatest uh, unifying leader that the, uh, that the Apaches ever had. Hmm. Uh, uh, famous, famous Kahinis included Victorio, uh, Nane, and Loco. And they were located primarily in the Membrano Mountains, also known as the Black Range of Western New Mexico. And then you have the real bad boys of the Apaches, the Nidney, who were located primarily in the mountains of uh, Northern Sonora and Chihuahua in, uh, in Mexico. And they were the band of, of Huo, uh, which uh, is how I choose to pronounce it. It's J-U-H, but a uh, few people, a few people disagree on the pronunciation. So uh, that's what I'm going to use. Where were the Apache living overall? And then where were the Chiricahua Apache living? Okay, the, the, think of, think of the, of the, 
land spread in three parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, the, the Western Apaches, uh, who were the Coiteros, the, Con- the Tontos, the Arivapai, and there's some debate over whether the Yavapai were actually Apaches. Uh, but that's what the uh, that's what the settlers and the soldiers called the Mojave Apaches or the Uman Indian, uh-huh. uh, although they didn't speak the same uh, basic language as the rest of the people, and they lived west of Tucson. Uh-huh. And the Chiricahuas lived uh, east of Tucson and included uh, the the four that I've mentioned already, and they ranged from mid eastern Arizona into Chihuahua and Sonora. The, uh, the Cajinis lived east of the Arizona and New Mexico line over to the Rio Grande in central New Mexico. And the Eastern Apaches, the Jicarilla, the Mescalero and the Lipans lived between the Pecos and the Rio Grande rivers. Okay. Wow. So, I mean, I think it's so easy to just say Apache and not really take into consideration that there were so many uh, bands, there were different sects of where they were living. And and we can't just say, oh, they were all in Arizona, <laughs> which is what we tend to try to do is to simplify and make it easy. But this is really good information for all of us to soak in. Let's talk about Geronimo's name <clears throat> and, and what it means. Well, his uh, his Apache name, uh, and there's some debate about this, was Goyakla, uh, which uh, it, nearly everyone interprets to mean one who yawns. But there, uh, the the uh, Apaches who live in Arizona claim that his that his name was actually Goyal, and that means intelligent, shrewd, and clever. And uh, I don't know if you uh, if you can determine that uh, from uh, from a baby's actions, and I actually think that you probably can. Then uh, uh, that's probably uh, uh, what his uh, name actually was. And then, of course, you have the uh, have the term Geronimo, uh, and the the uh, I've, I've had some. Uh, arguments with folks about about uh, whether you should use uh, the the uh, uh, Mexican and Spanish nicknames for the uh, for the Apaches, but actually the the Apaches were were proud of those because it meant that they were fierce enough that uh, they stood out from the from the rest and uh, uh, would. Uh, uh, be recognized by their uh, their natural enemies. Yeah, it's like, oh, we've been noted by these folks, our enemies. So, wow. So remember when we were kids and we were little and we used to jump off a high area and and we'd yell, Geronimo, do you remember that? Did you oh, do yeah. that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I ran, it was- I ran many an umbrella using that for a parachute and yelling that. You know? <laughs> We thought we were amazing. <laughs> and it's funny the things that you do when you're a little like that, you have no idea where it even came from. Where did that come from? Uh, the, the tale that I get is that uh, just before the, uh, 
the invasion of Normandy, the paratroopers uh, watched a, uh, a movie that had Geronimo in it. And uh, he was a real baddie in, in that movie. Mm-hmm. And when, uh, when they started bailing out, uh, he, he just uh, yelled Geronimo, you know, it's, <laughs> that he was going to be a, a real baddie for the Germans uh, too. And that's what everybody else started using. Wow. Again. I would have never thought that's where that even came from. Wow. Well, now Geronimo was a natural born hunter, correct? Uh, yeah, and I think you can say that about about just about all of the uh, all of the Apaches. He had some were much better than others, and and he would certainly uh, uh, fall into the top tier. Uh, he had good instincts for hunting, but like all Apache children, he was taught how to hunt the large animals like deer. And he learned the, to hunt the smaller ones like ground squirrels as a child by trial and error. Hmm. Yeah, and that's not to discredit when I say natural born hunter, it's not to take away from the fact that he probably really honed his skills over the years and worked hard at that, I'm assuming, right. but some people do have a little extra gift in there too. Sounds like he had both. So the Apache were great warriors. They were known for their raids. And then Geronimo was really, truly a champion at these raids from what I understand, right? Uh, yeah, the, uh, he, had, he had been on four raids uh, by the time he was 17. Now he didn't leave those raids by age 17. Mm. Uh, the, the Apache custom for training warriors was that uh, they served as novitiates, uh, supporting the, uh, the warriors by doing camp grunt work and cooking, taking care of the horses and other livestock, staying out of the way and watching how the warriors operated. And uh, if, if uh, they did well at that, then after four raids the uh, the warriors might accept a novitiate as a as a warrior uh, and you know when you when you look at that at that style that's remarkably similar to the way they did things in the middle ages where knights had squires you know ah, yeah. uh, and and uh, the warriors the new warriors i.e when they uh, when uh, Geronimo became 17, they were expected to lead a raid where they might take enough booty to establish uh, enough uh, personal wealth to take a wife. Hmm. Uh, Geronimo became a, a respected warrior and a powerful shaman, a di- what they call a Dian, uh, because he was brilliant tactically and it had, so it appears, uh, uh, power with a capital P, which uh, I, I use in my writings as supernatural power. Absolutely. Well, and it's interesting. It's it's like warrior and training type stuff, being able to watch what the seasoned warriors did and learn from them, a pretty remarkable way to learn how to do these raids yourself. So who were they typically raiding against? Uh, they raided anyone who was not a friend or part of the family. Uh, and, and, uh, there was a big difference between raiding for supplies. Uh, and it was very rare for them to kill anyone during a, 
during a supply read because they wanted that person to prosper so they could come back and steal from him again. Mm. And uh, uh, then there are war raids, which were usually uh, for revenge or survival. And uh, uh, they, they, they killed anybody that came across. Wow. And I think, I think something that's interesting is how the Apache were constantly also surrounded by forces who were against them. The Mexicans in the South, the surrounding Navajo and the Comanches also Comanches were great warriors as well. And then the government to the North. And then when it came to raiding the Mexicans, the government decided to fight back, correct? Uh, yeah, in, in terms of actual fighting, uh, the Mexicans were fearful and uh, they resisted going after uh, the Apaches in the mountains. Uh, mm -hmm. The Apaches didn't think much of the Mexicans as, uh, as fighting men, with a few notable exceptions, besides uh, offering a, a, a scout bounty. The Mexicans uh, often tried to get the uh, uh, Apaches uh, uh, drunk at peace talks. And when they, when they uh, got so drunk, they couldn't stand and they would slaughter them. Oh, wow. uh, and that happened uh, a few times with, uh, with the uh, people that uh, Woe uh, led, but after a while he, uh, he got smart and wouldn't let more than about half of his people go in to, uh, to have a drink and the rest of them stayed outside. So the Mexicans knew that if they killed anybody, they could expect some severe retribution. Mm, wow. But that, you know, that didn't stop Geronimo and Apache though, did it? I mean, this bounty on the scalps and the Mexican government saying they're gonna come after them and all that, right? Oh no, when, uh, when Geronimo returned to uh, San Carlos in the, in the winter of 1884, he told the agent who was Captain uh, Emmett Crawford that his women could beat the Mexican military just by throwing stones at them. And the, and the, the real Apache mode of operations was ambush. Wow. So tell us more about that encounter with the Mexicans. The way the, uh, the Apaches fought Mexicans depended on place and time. When uh, Geronimo and Victoria, Victorio were young men, they uh, they led big raids from Mangus, Colorado, into Mexico, and it was usually with large groups, uh, fifty to hundred men, and they rarely fought the Mexicans head on. The the Chiricahuas often raided in Sonora and brought uh, the booty they didn't want to trade. They didn't want to trade with the storekeepers in Chihuahua. And the Mexicans often tried to uh, uh, talk peace deals, get the Apaches drunk, as I've said, on Mezcal so they could easily slaughter them. Mm. Uh, and uh, Geronimo and uh, Quo suckered Juan Mata Ortiz, who was Joaquin Terraza's number two. Uh, Terraza was the man who, uh, who led the uh, Mexicans when they wiped out Victorio uh, into a, and uh, the attack on Juan Mata Ortiz was by a trap at a place called the uh, Chocolate Pass. Hmm. So tell us more about 
Chocolate Pass then? What happened there? Okay, Chocolate Pass, was, there's, a, there's a little mountain range that runs between Casas Grandes and uh, a little Mexican town called Galena. Uh, and uh, it was it was really a major thoroughfare, and uh, the reason it was called Chocolate Pass was because of the of the color of the uh, of the rocks around there, uh, and the uh, 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 Chiricahuas uh, had 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 some uh, uh, bad uh, interactions with uh, with. Uh, uh, Terrazas and uh, Juan Mata Ortiz. And so uh, they decided uh, that they would ease down into the mountains close to where uh, Juan Mata Ortiz had a ranch, which was near Galena. And uh, uh, the, the plan was to uh, actually bait him to come out and, uh, and uh, go after some uh, a very few Apaches that he thought had stolen some of his horses. Well, as it turned out, the, the Apaches actually had to uh, to go into Galena and show themselves and uh, uh, take horses three times before uh, Ortiz actually came out after them, uh, furious, and uh, uh, they they trapped him on the uh, on the road into uh, Chocolate Pass. Uh, between between two uh, groups, one was on horses and one were uh, were in a uh, an arroyo, running alongside the road. Mm. And as soon as Ortiz saw that that he was uh, he was being trapped, he uh, took out he led his men. He had twenty one with him uh, for a, a little uh, rock covered hill, and he got up on top of the hill. And his men furiously started uh, setting up a, a little rock wall that they could fight from behind. Wow. And um, uh, the, the Apaches showed up and they uh, uh, had two or three uh, sharpshooters keep the Mexicans pinned down and they crawled up the hill pushing a, a stone uh, in, front of their, uh, in front of their heads as a a shield. Kind of shield, yeah. Right, wow. and uh, when they when they finally got up to uh, uh, to that rock wall, they went over it, and it was hand to hand combat. But they wiped out all but two. Uh, one one kid got on a uh, got on a horse, and took off, and Geronimo told uh, the the man to just let him go, that he would bring back more that they could kill. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other one that had survived was Juan Mata Ortiz, and they uh, they dug a little pit, put brush in it, staked him out over it, uh, and uh, Nane, who was anxious to uh, to get a little revenge on him, uh, because uh, Nane was Victorio's number two, and he had just uh, escaped being wiped out because he was in the in the uh, right place at the right time. Wow. Uh, and uh, he, he uh, uh, set the brush on fire and they, uh, and they uh, literally burned him to death, but they thought that it was a good death because he didn't make a sound. Hmm. So- uh, what, what do you the, mean by that? Like it, um, it killed him quickly? No, that 
that uh, he showed great uh, great courage and bravery in, oh. uh, in not uh, uh, letting them enjoy his uh, his suffering. Wow! Wow! It was definitely a different time back then. Yes, it was. Very interesting story there, and again, one that a lot of us have never even heard. So you mentioned earlier that the Mexican government had a bounty on the Apache scalps. And I was just curious, did the Apache also do likewise? Uh, no. The Apaches very rarely took scalps. Uh, and when they did, it was, it was usually only in revenge or uh, for some kind of uh, rare ceremony that, uh, that they had. Mm. There's a story about uh, after Geronimo surrendered, uh, all of this stuff about about Apaches uh, scalping people uh, was in the newspapers, and uh, the, some of the first reporters that he uh, talked to uh, asked him if if uh, he could show them his cloak that he had made out of uh, human scalps, and uh, Geronimo. Uh, turned away from them. He thought they were crazy because uh, Apaches just did not scalp. They didn't like to handle dead bodies. That was the, the bottom line. Yeah, it made for sensational stories, I'm sure, yeah. in the papers. But again, so much misinformation out there. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, Geronimo had an interesting and very strategic way he fought in battle. Why don't you share more about that? Okay, this, this uh, I think what you're referring to is the battle where uh, Mangus Colorado's Quo and Cochise led uh, columns to Arispe in Sonora, Mexico to avenge what had happened to their people the year before, mm -hmm. Anos. Uh, Geronimo was given the honor of uh, directing the warriors because he had lost his entire family wife, three children under 10, and his mother at Yano's. Mm. Uh, battle was bows and arrows versus rifles. And the main reason the warriors didn't use rifles was the ammunition. They just didn't have an easily accessible supply. And so uh, uh, in, in those days, which was in uh, 1851, uh, while they had a rifle, they they just didn't use them unless uh, they really needed them for the uh, for the range, and they could shoot bows much faster than cap and ball uh, rifles and revolvers, and they could be uh, uh, that 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 could be loaded uh, in an up close fight, uh, and so bows were superior, actually superior to the rifle if you uh, if you were close to your enemy. Where the rifle was superior was in range. It could accurately hit a target at a, at a much longer range than a bow and arrow, uh, at least at least three times the range that a that a bow and arrow might have. Sure. And unlike most of their battles, the Apaches didn't fight from uh, ambush in this particular battle, but went nose to nose with the Mexicans in a uh, in a pitched battle. No one knows uh, how the Apaches knew Arispe was the location of the same military that killed their people the year before. Uh, and this is also the battle where uh, Geronimo supposedly got his Mexican Anglo name 
where the uh, that every time he uh, he led a, a charge, the Mexicans would uh, call on Saint Jerome uh, for uh, for uh, help, ah. and uh, and uh, so uh, the the Mexicans called him Geronimo, uh, which became anglicized to Geronimo. Wow! And uh, that that battle lasted about two hours. There were a lot of uh, warriors that were killed, but there wasn't a Mexican left alive, and Geronimo was still standing. And Geronimo was still standing. Yep. Wow. Wow. So what else can you tell us about Geronimo? I mean, obviously he's pretty, pretty, I don't know what the word is, sturdy. <laughs> Let's just say warrior. So tell us more about Geronimo and, and the other warriors as they fought in battle. What else do you know? Well, the first thing to, to, to take note of is that the Apaches were among the greatest athletes in the world at the time. Wow. They could, they could run 80 to 100 miles in a day without stopping. Uh, and they probably maxed out day after day, uh, doing about 70 miles a day uh, for day after day running. Wow. Uh, it was rare, but not uncommon for them to, uh, to run a horse into the ground if it was carrying a man. That kind of running probably didn't exceed 100 miles, 100 miles. Uh, and on horses, you know, uh, we we see these these great uh, paintings of uh, Comanche uh, uh, cavalry uh, leaning under the horse's neck and doing uh, all sorts of tricks on them when they're when they're fighting. But as far as a, an Apache was concerned, a horse was just a tool. Uh, on horses, Apaches were basically mounted infantry. They, when they got to a battle, they didn't fight from their horses. They got off to fight. Oh my and, gosh. Uh, wow. And, uh, you know, they just, uh, uh, weren't like most people seem to imagine that they were, they were ambush specialists and they usually fought from cover. Uh, and for an Apache to be wounded in a fight, it was not considered a, a, a particularly good or brave action. Mm. And uh, uh, rarely did they use bait tactics like the Plains Indians did. And the, the chocolate pass fight uh, uh, happened in a pass between, as I've said, Casa Grandes and Galena. But it was, it was really a very rare tactical thing that, that uh, they did. I had no idea. I mean, I can't imagine facing battle and then jumping off my horse and going straight into the ambush it's just wow <laughs> interesting so i know that we talked earlier about the mexicans quite a bit but geronimo had an exceptional reason for hating the mexicans why was that yeah this is this is the uh, the reason that they uh, that they went to a respay for that for that big battle the uh, sonoran military sneaked into Chihuahua, found the Apache camp while the, uh, uh, the men were off trading in what was probably Llanos. The Apaches called it Casque, and uh, murdered nearly everyone in it. 
including Geronimo's family. And uh, when he and the other men returned at the end of the day from a day of trading, they found the camp destroyed and the bodies of their families. Uh, and the trading trip had been led by Mangus Colorados. He didn't have the men or the weapons for immediate revenge and returned to Arizona to uh, start preparing a, a major revenge raid the next year. Uh, and as I've said, they traveled into Mexico from three directions with uh, Cochise and Ho leading the other two columns. And uh, Geronimo was given the, the honor of leading the attack head on. Mm. Wow, as he should. Yep. And you once told me that while Geronimo was grieving, he heard a voice. Tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, he, uh, he, he, has told people that uh, he was he was he felt like he'd been stunned for a long time and uh, uh, a short time later uh, uh, he was he was uh, sitting uh, staring off into the into the distance and he heard a uh, he heard the voice of the great creator god of the Apaches Usin and Usin. Uh, uh, also spoke to him about 25 years later when he was praying for his uh, sister, quote, quote, she was actually his cousin, who was the wife of Quo, and uh, she was struggling to have her first child, uh, Dak Lugie, in 1874. Uh, and and uh, the first time he heard the voice, uh, it said, no gun will ever kill you. I will take the bullets from the gun and I'll guide your, your uh, arrows. And the second time, uh, 25 years later, he heard that uh, to go back, uh, he, would, he had climbed up a mountain while uh, Ishton was in labor and uh, uh, had, had been praying there. And the voice uh, said, uh, go back. She and her first child will, uh, will be safe. Uh, and uh, you will you will not die from uh, anything uh, that uh, happens to you in, in uh, battle. Uh, you'll die in your bed, hmm. and that's the way it happened. That is what happened. Wow, wow. So he, you know, he had these what some would say are supernatural powers. He also was hearing these the voices, and we'll get a little bit more into that side of Geronimo in a bit. So did he get to avenge his family? He avenged his family for the rest of his life until he surrendered in 1886. And, and a, an example of this is uh, in 1882, uh, he led uh, uh, 70 warriors out of uh, Mexico to force uh, the uh, uh, Kahini Chief Loco and his people, about 350 who were still at uh, San Carlos after uh, Geronimo and, and about half of the uh, Chiricahuas had, had left uh, the, the reservation. And they had, they had been eminently successful in getting away from the Americans. And with 350 people, uh, most of them uh, women and children, they had gotten across the border where the, the Americans couldn't follow, uh, 
with the loss of maybe maybe uh, one or two. Mm-hmm. So they went back to get uh, Loco because they wanted his fighting men. <clears throat> and uh, in 1882, they uh, they were out on a on a big uh, plateau called uh, Ash Flat uh, that was above San Carlos Reservation, uh, and uh, <clears throat> they they ran into a uh, a sheep camp that was run by a man named Maestas. He was a, he was a young, uh, strong and, and powerful Mexican. And uh, Geronimo uh, uh, asked him, asked, uh, rode up to the camp with the men and uh, scared the daylights out of everybody. And uh, uh, Maestas immediately recognized uh, Geronimo because he had been a captive uh, of the Apaches uh, back when he was a child. And Geronimo had recognized, had realized that uh, he was, he had just been taken when he was a little too old. He was about 12 years old when that happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and so uh, after uh, a year or so, uh, Geronimo traded him to a, a rancher for a pony a revolver and a box of shells. Hmm. And uh, when they when they uh, came upon uh, the the camp run by Maestas, uh, Geronimo asked him if uh, if they could have some sheep to eat. And uh, Maestas had already been warned by one of the White Mountain Apaches who was helping him uh, not to let Geronimo in camp. Well, he did, and sure enough, after um, uh, uh, they had a meal. Uh, Geronimo uh, had his men tie all of the uh, 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 Mexicans together mm-hmm. and kill them. And they did. They, uh, uh, Geronimo took uh, uh, Maestas's rifle, it's a new uh, Winchester, uh, shot him in the uh, 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 private parts, uh, and uh, as, as uh, Maestas was screaming in agony, then he put a bullet in his heart, and killed yeah. him, and said, see, I, I had mercy on you, Maestas. And uh, uh, he, uh, there were, uh, Maestas had three children there, and they were, they were all quite young. I think the oldest was maybe six. And uh, wow. their mother had told, told them to to run and hide, but the Apaches found them anyway and uh, wanted to know if, and they asked Geronimo, should we kill the children too? And he said, yeah, they need to die just like my children did. And so uh, they they killed two of them, but they couldn't find the third one for a little bit until they found him hiding under the the dress of, of one of the Apache women who had been helping uh, cook. And uh, uh, they pulled him out and wanted to know if, if Geronimo wanted to kill him. And he said, yeah, uh, he, he needs to die. And uh, Geronimo's chief, who was the uh, uh, youngest son of Cochise said, no, you're not gonna do that. And uh, uh, Geronimo's uh, 
father-in-law, a, a man named Jelly Kinney, uh, put, it, put the point of his spear up to him and said, if you do that, you're going to die. And uh, so Geronimo thought discretion was the better part of valor and said, okay, uh, Naichi, Naichi says I shouldn't kill the child and I always be Naichi. But he was, he was like that until he surrendered. If he wow. had a chance to kill a Mexican, he killed her. Wow. See, and that's, that's interesting that, you know, he listened to the leader, even though, you know, he was still trying to avenge his family. Yeah. It's such a sad story all the way around. So how many years did Geronimo and the Apache go back and forth in battle with the Mexicans? It seems like it went on for a long time. Yeah, the, the Apaches fought the, uh, the Spanish and later Mexicans for more than 250 years. Wow, really? Uh, and, and as the story that I just told illustrates, uh, he took pleasure in killing Mexicans and in particular Sonorans from about 1851 to 1886. Uh, following uh, uh, Mangus Coloradus, he led raids into Mexico beginning about 1837. So he fought the Mexicans for nearly 50 years. Wow, interesting. And then, so in 1848, the Mexican-American War came to an end with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and then later the um, Gadsden Purchase, which was in 1854. And so what did this treaty and purchase entail? Well, in uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo, Mexico gave up uh, New Mexico, California, Nevada, Utah, most of Arizona and Colorado, parts of Oklahoma, Kansas, Wyoming. It was about 55% of their original territory. Really? Yeah. And then the, the Gadsden Purchase was used to buy land for the best route for the Southern uh, Transcontinental Railroad and to uh, resolve uh, disputes after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, mm -hmm. the, the Gaston Purchase and Treaty agreed that uh, the Americans would stop Indian raids into Mexico from the United States. Mm. Okay, so, and then this ends the Mexican-American War. So now the U.S. owns territories that once belonged to the Apache. And then on top of that, in the 1850s, we now have a new discovery that has people encroaching even more yeah that that was the the great migration to the 1849 gold fields in california uh, some that were headed for california peeled out of the out of the pack to stay in arizona and new mexico and start farms and ranches and naturally that's where the, uh, the friction uh, mm. began between the anglos and the uh, and the apaches Oh, wow. Yeah, big changes there. Uh, it's just encroachments from all over. So did this cause the Apache to fight back even more? <laughs> well, for, uh, for several years, surprisingly, the, the Apaches treated the Anglos as friends because they had, they had defeated their longtime enemies in Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, but that relationship uh, uh, slowly went bad until 1861 
when uh, Cochise, a son-in-law of Mangus Colorado's, was involved in the Cut the Tent affair that started a 10-year war with the Americans. Uh, and the Cut the Tent affair was, was when uh, a, a shavetail lieutenant uh, was sent to, uh, to get uh, Cochise to show where uh, a, a kidnapped uh, boy who later was uh, 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 a big name in the Apache Wars, Mickey mm -hmm. Free, uh, uh, to, to hand him over. They wanted, they wanted Geronimo to give him back. Geronimo, uh, or not Geronimo, I'm sorry, uh, Cochise to give him back. Mm. And Cochise said, well, I don't know who you're talking about, and I didn't have anything to do with it, but if you'll, uh, if you'll give me a couple of days, I can find it. And uh, Bascom uh, stoutly refused uh, and told the soldiers to put uh, uh, Cochise and the people that were with him under arrest. Cochise whipped out a knife, cut through the tent, took off, and that was the start of, of, a, of a major uh, uh, Apache war. Uh, Mangus Coloradus was murdered in 1863 when he came in for peace talks with uh, General West. Mm -hmm. uh, General Carlton, who had led the, uh, the California column uh, uh, from California uh, uh, across the uh, uh, Arizona and into New Mexico to uh, to fight the Confederates, but when they got there, all they found were a bunch of angry Indians. Huh. And uh, he got, uh, Carlton got Kit Carson to be his field commander against the Muscalero Apaches and Navajos uh, and began establishing what amounted to uh, a concentration camp at Bosque Redondo next to uh, Fort Sumner on the Pecos River. And the fighting grew steadily worse. Uh, mm. General Crook arrived in 1871 and decided to establish the Apache Scouts in the belief that it takes an Apache to catch an Apache. Ah. And I think that that's really a good analogy, uh, analysis of the situation. Mm -hmm. About 40% of the time between 1872 when Cochise agreed to a reservation and an agent who was his friend, Tom Jeffords, uh, in 1886, which uh, obviously was about uh, 14 or 15 years, uh, when most of the uh, renegade Chiricahuas surrendered, uh, there, had been, uh, there had been peace. Around 1880, the White Mountain and the CBQ Apaches discovered the White Eyes were claiming more and more of their reservation land, and there was little they could do about it. And there was a CBQ Apache, uh, I have a hard time with his name, I think it's Nakai Del Kalini. Okay. Uh, the, the Apaches called him the dreamer. Started having visions which said the great chiefs and the game would come back when the white eyes went away. Mm. And he had a version of the ghost dance and he had a lot of believers uh, who even included uh, Apache scouts. Right. And the, uh, the San Carlos agent uh, at the time, a man named uh, Tiffany, 
feared the dreamer would start a war and ordered the army to arrest him. Uh, the dreamer surrendered to the army, but his people were uh, angrily uh, uh, demanded that he be freed. A fight broke out and he was killed. Hmm. And the army overreacted to the situation and sent far more troops to San Carlos than were necessary. And Geronimo and his followers were convinced the army was coming after them. They weren't and left uh, for the Sierra Madre. story very interesting and i mean you've obviously done so much research over the years and you wrote three books about geronimo and one of them is called the iliad of geronimo so there's obviously the book we all read in college homer's iliad why did you choose the title you did well the, the word iliad means a long series of woes or trials or events uh and is is we all know the Iliad is an epic poem said to have been told by Homer describing the 10-year Trojan War. And it was a clash of heroes and gods during the siege of the fortress uh, Troy by the Greeks. The story of Geronimo's wars in the last 10 years before his surrender and the way General Nelson Miles finally deceived him into surrendering in his Sierra Madre stronghold with false promises, uh, I think is an epic story that often mirrors the rage, the battles, and the deception told in the Iliad. It's oh, a, yeah. It's a, uh, a true uh, uh, epic story that is uniquely American. Yeah, for sure. That's very interesting. I, I would have never tied those two together and that makes total sense so you might as well tell us a little bit more about what this book entails and what years you're covering through throughout this book okay it, it begins with the first and only time and i emphasize only time geronimo was actually captured all the other times he surrendered ah, right and for the military fighting him there's a big difference between capture and surrender. Uh, like the Trojans, the Apaches believed they were safe in their great fortress in Mexico, the Sierra Madre Mountains, where the, mountain, where the Americans couldn't come uh, uninvited into Mexico, uh, nor could they find the Apache camps if they did. The Sierra Madre covers about 40,000 square miles and it's some of the roughest country on the face of the earth. Mm. And over the 10 years of the story, there were many heroes on both sides. Uh, General Crook managed to beat the Apaches with their own people, get into their fortress in Mexico and find their camps. Geronimo believed he could do that only because God helped him. Mm. And the American Trojan horse was the lies that, that uh, General Miles, who replaced General Crook, told the Apaches. Ah, very interesting. See, everybody go get the book. It's, it's, <laughs> you've written some very interesting about the research, but about the stories and the human side of all of this. It's not just facts and data like you'll find when you're trying to find information. So thanks for what you're doing there. So even though most people have heard the name Geronimo, I don't know that everyone knows about his being sentenced to hang. What was that about? 
<laughs> yeah, here's here's where the meanings of capture and surrender come into play. Right. If an if an enemy was captured, then there were no terms of surrender. The army could do with the prisoner as if it had captured an outlaw. If an enemy surrendered, then there were terms and agreements that the army agreed to follow with its uh, with its captive. Mm. The only time Geronimo was captured, as I've said, was in 1877 by uh, John Clum, who was a San Carlos agent with 100 tribal policemen uh, at uh, Victorio's Ojo Caliente Reservation. And he was able to catch uh, Geronimo or capture him by a trick and uh, Geronimo never forgot it. Oh. Uh, Plum's orders from the Bureau of Indian Affairs were to capture Geronimo, turn him over to local Arizona authorities who after a perfunctory trial would hang him. And Geronimo, uh, he, he, he carried Geronimo to the San Carlos uh, guardhouse from Ojo Caliente and uh, put him in there and told him he didn't, he wouldn't have to be there long because the sheriff was coming to get him to hang him. Mm -hmm. And uh, Geronimo waited for the Tucson sheriff to come get him and in, in, in that guardhouse and carry him to Tucson where the, where the white eyes uh, could watch him dance on air while being hung by the neck from a rope, but it never happened. Hmm. Once again, it never happened. How, so, I mean, how did he escape? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's almost supernatural the way that it happened. First, the sheriff never came. Nobody knows why, but he just Whoa, never, really? never appeared. Right. Huh. Plum, Plum had, had, had been, uh, implementing something called the concentration policy out of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, where they were going to put as many Apaches as possible on, uh, on uh, San Carlos. And he had gone from uh, being responsible for, uh, for a few hundred Indians to, uh, to uh, he, was, he was starting to push uh, uh, several thousand. Uh, and when he got back to, uh, to the uh, uh, San Carlos with uh, Geronimo, uh, he realized that uh, he was really responsible for a lot more than what they were originally paying him for. And uh, his, his uh, Apache police were very effective. And uh, so uh, Plum offered to handle the Apache question in Arizona. Uh, if the BIA and Army uh, would increase its pay, and they refused, you know, they were hmm. they were kind of outraged that that he wanted more money. Yeah, and so uh, Clum quit in disgust and and just left. Uh, the new agent Lyman Hart talked to Geronimo and believed he'd be peaceful, and he let him go out of the guardhouse where uh, 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 anywhere he wanted to go on the, on the reservation. Uh, Geronimo's wife, uh, a lady whose name was Chihashkish, and two children were staying in Chief Naichi's camp on the Gila River, and that's where he went. Ah. After, after he surrendered, 
in uh, September 1886, President Glover Cleveland wanted to turn Geronimo over to civilian authorities for hanging because uh, uh, General Miles claimed that he had captured Geronimo. Uh, <laughs> However, after about six weeks of investigation and they, and they could not get the truth out of, out of uh, uh, Miles, uh, they had a, a general where they were, they, they had stopped the train that the Apaches were on uh, uh, in San Antonio and uh, they were keeping them uh, there until they, until they uh, resolved what was uh, 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 going on, and finally they uh, they independently questioned Geronimo and, and uh, Naichi about uh, uh, how they had surrendered or were captured. They both told almost exactly the same tale, and so the uh, the War Department believed them. They didn't believe uh, uh, Miles. And uh, they decided that, yeah, they had really surrendered. And so they would send them on to Florida rather than turning them back to uh, the civilians who would surely hang them. Wow. So he, so Geronimo uh, escaped the hanging twice. Mm 